0: Business News Power Hour. Well, uh, some very, very special insights for you on the hour of power tonight. We are running uh, from our partners in London, the Financial Times, the Rachman Review, Gideon Rachman, who is one of the world's top columnists. Uh, his job is to travel the world for the Financial Times of London and write about interesting events once a week. He has one column a week to do. Now he's doing a podcast and he spoke with Cape Town lawyer Judith February for the Rachman Review this week. We're going to be giving you the package or the highlights thereof in the show tonight, so don't go anywhere. It's fascinating. What are they talking about? Well, it doesn't take a lot to work out that it's all about Jacob Zuma going to jail, the implications and how the world sees South Africa. Also coming up tonight, Pitbullion will be assessing uh, the acquisition by an offshore company of the Imperial Group. Uh, It's a 12.7 billion rand deal, it is at a huge premium to the share price at which Imperial was trading, and it is half of what used to be the old Imperial Motors, which is the motor side, uh, the re- motor retailing side is now a separately listed company, but it's the old uh, infrastructure side of Imperial, which has now gone off to foreign ownership. I wonder what the late Bill Lynch will be. Thinking about that wherever he might be now, and then we'll be talking with Koki Koyman later in the program, and that focus is on the news from Nedbank that it's sending a third of its staff home. Yes, at no point in the future will any, at any time, will Nedbank have more than sixty percent of the staff in the office. Implications are. Massive, as well as for everybody else who works in South Africa, are you going to be sent home as well by your employer? we got all of that coming up in the Hour of Power tonight.
1: Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: I'm Alec Hogg and with me in our virtual studio are my colleagues Nadia Swat and Justin Rowe-Roberts. Let's kick off with the news headlines of the day. Here's Nadia.
2: Former South African President Jacob Zuma, who was convicted on contempt of court charges last week, spent the night in prison after he failed in a last-ditch bid to delay serving his 15-month sentence. Confirmation of Zuma's detention came shortly after the expiry of a constitutional court deadline that he be jailed by midnight on Wednesday. He's being held in the hospital section of a newly built prison in Est for medical assessment, Justice Minister Ronald Lamola told reporters. Zuma will serve at least a quarter of his 15-month sentence, Lamola said. The National Prosecutor Authority has backtracked on its statement that Interpol had issued red notices for the Gupta family. The correct statement issued by the investigative directorate says that while it is correct that red notices have been issued for circulation among law enforcement entities of Interpol member states, red notices for the four Gupta family members are still under consideration by the Commission for the Control of Interpol's Files. Africa had its worst week of the pandemic, with the number of weekly cases rising 20% as the Delta variant spreads across the continent and becomes dominant in most regions. The World Health Organization's Africa director has said that the situation is expected to worsen. The pandemic's global death toll has surpassed 4 million. Former President Donald Trump is suing Facebook, Twitter, Alphabet's Google and their chief executives, raising the stakes in his battle against social media giants who have blocked him. Billing the effort as a move to defend First Amendment rights, Trump filed three separate class action lawsuits in federal court in Florida against the tech giants and Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, and Google's Sundar Pichai. The lawsuits see court orders to restore his social media accounts, along with punitive damages to ensure that other users can't be banned or flagged by the tech giants
0: it 's quite interesting, you mentioned Donald Trump, uh, Nadia, in the interview that Gideon Ruchman did with Judith February. She also draws parallels between Jacob Zuma and Donald Trump. I wonder if he 's going to be starting to sue social well so not social media, but media outlets, as he did try once. I think he sued as for a million rands for one of the cartoons, very famous cartoon of uh, of justice being raped, Lady Justice being raped by Jacob Zuma and his cohorts. It was a very powerful cartoon, but I think that Zuma eventually backed down on that one too. Well, let's see what happened in the markets today. Here's Justin.
3: The JSE All Share Index was sharply lower as global indices around the world fall around, around the 2% mark as renewed concerns about the Delta variant ring the alarm bells amongst traders worldwide. The JSE All Share Index was around 2.5% lower at 65,200. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies uh, in a risk-off day, trading at 14 rand 40 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 80 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 04 to the euro. Gold is up at $1,816 an ounce. A Kruger rand is trading at approximately 27,500 rand. Brent crude is lower at $73.70 a barrel. And Bitcoin also partakes in today's sell-off, trading weaker at 470,000 rand a coin. The resource counters were amongst the worst affected, with Impala Platinum and Northern Platinum down more than 7% on the day. In the news today, Dubai-based DP World has offered $12.7 billion to buy out JSC-listed stalwart Imperial Logistics. The offer of 66 rand per share represents a 40% premium to the closing price of 47 rand and 30 cents on Wednesday. In 2018, Imperial unbundled its automotive unit, Motus, in order to streamline the operations of the business, which which decision seems to have been vindicated. The offer is subject to shareholder approval and is expected to be concluded in the first quarter of 2022. Imperial shares were up around a third, trailing the offer price by a few percentage points. Nigeria's revenue service said on Thursday that it instructed banks to freeze the accounts of media entertainment firm Africa and its Nigerian subsidiary for breaching agreements and denying access to their records for auditing, according to reports from Tech Central, The bank would have to recover $63 billion in outstanding tax obligations from MultiChoice Africa and MultiChoice Nigeria, the Federal Inland Revenue Service said in a statement. The demand of $63 billion is larger than the market capitalization of the company. MultiChoice's shares were down more than 7% lower on the JSE today.
4: Today is Thursday, July 8th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Donald Trump is hitting back at social media companies that banned him from their platforms earlier this year. The new COVID variant is spreading across the globe, but at an uneven impact, and South African police have arrested former President Jacob Zuma. Plus, private equity firms are gobbling up UK companies, but many Brits aren't sure they like it.
5: Private equity used to buy largely just companies that most people hadn't heard of and that were kind of unloved and unglamorous. But when you start buying big-name supermarkets, people really start to take notice.
4: I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Several social media companies booted Donald Trump from their platforms earlier this year for his role in the January attack on the U.S. Capitol. And yesterday, Trump said he would lead class-action lawsuits against Facebook, Twitter, and Google, and their CEOs. His lawsuits allege unlawful censorship of Americans and accuse the company of violating the First Amendment. They also claim that Section 230 of the Common Decency Act is unconstitutional. This gives tech platforms immunity from being sued over user-generated content. The former president wants the court to restore his accounts and impose punitive damages Twitter declined to comment. Facebook and Google also did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The new Delta variant of coronavirus is spreading rapidly across the globe, dampening many countries' hopes of putting the pandemic behind them. Spain has the highest infection rate in mainland Europe, Israel is experiencing rising rates and in both cases, the Delta variant is behind the surge in infections. FT data journalist John Byrne Murdoch has been tracking the new strain.
6: The latest data we have puts the current prevalence of Delta, so the the percentage of all cases in the country that are believed to be from the Delta variant, in Spain is around one third. Um, And, you know, that's, that's much higher than zero but it's actually lower than a lot of other countries both in Europe and beyond. So the U.K. and uh, Russia, for some time now, we we believe that pretty much all cases are now from Delta. But um, if you look across to somewhere like Indo- Indonesia, it's all, all, also very high in the high 90 percent, uh, high 92 percent. Portugal, around 90 percent. Netherlands and Germany, around 60 percent.
4: John told me that the variant may be spreading uniformly across the world, but the impact, say on hospitalizations and death rates, varies depending on where you look and how many people are vaccinated in each location.
6: In a country like the UK, you've got a very steep surge in cases that's been going on over the last few weeks or a couple of months now, but that is predominantly coming among young people. So younger adults make up a much larger percentage of the UK's cases now than they did in the past. And of course, vice versa, the older, more vulnerable, Um, people make up a a shrinking proportion. We're seeing similar things um, happening in Spain, for example, and the early signs of similar trends in the US. Whereas if you look at a country like South Africa, where far, far, far lower percentage of people have been vaccinated than some of those other countries. So what we see there is something quite different and dramatically worse, which is that in South Africa, this wave looks just like the waves that have come before it. We see cases rise, we see hospital admissions rise, And we then see deaths rise. So really, the story of what Delta is doing is very different depending on vaccine coverage. But the story of Delta itself in terms of its spread
4: is is uniform across the world. That's the FT senior data visualization journalist John Byrne Murdoch. Private equity firms have been snapping up British companies at a record pace. The wave of deals includes household names like the supermarket chain Morrisons, and all these buyouts have become unsettling for many Brits. To talk more about what the concerns are, I'm joined by our private capital correspondent, Kay Wiggins. Hey, Kay, welcome back.
5: Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me again.
4: So, Kay, can you describe what the debate over private equity in the UK looks like right now? Like, you know, what's being said?
5: Yeah, of course. Um, And it's really interesting because this, to many people, private equity is an industry that they like, don't know very much about. It feels like quite a technical thing. It feels like something that's kind of, you know, maybe operating in the shadows slightly. One thing that's happened in the UK this year is actually it's become the subject of quite a lot of relatively mainstream public debate. And so part of that is coming from shareholders in the companies that are being targeted by private equity firms who are starting to speak out more publicly than they normally would saying that private equity firms are trying to buy the companies that they're shareholders of, you know, too cheaply. And they're raising concerns about what that's going to mean for the future of those businesses and whether their assets are going to be sold and things like that. But also the Daily Mail, which is a very popular tabloid newspaper, started a campaign against what it calls ruthless and predatory deal-making by private equity firms, which is, you know, really remarkable development over here and really brings the issue into the mainstream in a way that it hasn't been for a long time.
4: (laughs) That really says it all. Um, So, Kate, why are so many British companies being bought out right now?
5: Yeah, so on the question of why now, I mean, when I was talking to KKR about this, they point out that the FTSE 100 is trading a lower multiple of earnings, so a lower multiple of the earnings of the underlying companies than similar indexes in most other countries. Um, we've also seen kind of some figures from JP Morgan a few months ago saying that on a price to earnings basis, the UK market is at its lowest point in the past two decades against other kind of leading economies. So on the one hand, kind of Brexit and the pandemic have made companies really cheap. And on the other hand, the UK's vaccine rollout has actually gone so well that private equity firms are starting to want to buy British companies so they can benefit from the recovery that will hopefully come as a result of that super fast vaccine rollout. So let's talk about the the type of
4: companies here, you know, Morrison's, as the um these are obviously big names that people know is that what has people upset or is it just the volume of these type of deals that that have people riled up
5: i think it's a combination but i do think in particular it, it's the, the, it's the names of these companies that really play a big role right you know private equity used to buy largely just companies that most people hadn't heard of and that were kind of unloved and unglamorous and didn't tend to make the front pages but when you start buying big name supermarkets that have been trading in the UK for you know a really long time that everybody knows and that people you know have been paying a lot more attention to during the pandemic when we all remember those worries about you know what would happen if the supermarkets ran out of certain products and groceries you know it's one of those industries that people are paying a lot more attention to
4: You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
1: At Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's thought leadership feature, made just for you by Bridrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Well, it's Thursday night. Piet as always, is our guest co-host tonight. Dramatic news last night: the fact that Jacob Zuma hung on just before midnight. He gave <laughs> himself
7: the
0: bitter up. End. <laughs> yeah, the bitter end. And 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 all of the people who'd been. Uh, shouting that they would die before Zuma went to jail. Well, clearly they dissipated and it was a bit of a damp squib at the end, but I guess the whole news media was waiting. Around the world, the reaction's been positive.
7: Yeah, I, I, and rightly so. I think it's, uh, it, it shows the Constitution has been upheld. Um, unfortunately, one one could almost say surprisingly for where we answer that African Day. but uh, it's a good thing that it was upheld. It's a good thing that Uh, The rule of law um, uh, asserted itself. Uh, So uh, good news. Um, The market over seems to have discounted it because it hasn't gone up. It's actually gone down. (laughs) It hasn't had uh, uh, any influence in the market at all.
0: So investors, traders rather than investors, investors would take a long-term view, but traders anticipated that this was all going to happen anyway.
7: Well, to the extent that they had positions on in this African market, I think what's happening is the African market today, with a bit of a sell off and some resource stocks and the RAND weakening a bit, has almost nothing to do with Zuma going to jail or anything like that. It's more to do with a stronger dollar and what's happening in the US. I mean, uh, you know, it's we the, we, the, we the tail, and the dog is just wagging us. That's, that's all that's happening.
0: You mentioned the US. Apple has uh, again become the most valuable. Company on Earth, two point four trillion dollars, and the share price hitting an all time high. What might be pushing it now? Given that uh, the antitrust uh, drums are beating very loudly in Washington,
7: they are. But I think in the short term, what's happened in the U.S. is that long bond yields have declined by over twenty basis points, which, in uh, value terms, is uh, is quite a significant decline. You know, twenty basis points from one. 1.6% to 1.4% or even 3.5% is is quite significant. So r- interest rates have come down or long-term interest rates have come down. Uh, so the present value of the cash flows that Apple is going to generate over the next 50 years, which is what the market is discounting, has gone up by a lot because of that small movement interest rate. So I think that's probably the simplest explanation for what is happening there with the growth stocks right now outperforming uh, and value stocks underperforming. Uh, it's uh, due to the decline in the long-term uh, interest rate or the bond yield, so to speak.
0: But it feels like just the other day, it was probably a, a couple of years ago, that Apple broke through $1 trillion mm. in market last, value. Yeah,
7: 18 months ago or so, wasn't it?
0: And now it's $2.5 trillion. You have mm. to ask yourself, is this a direct reflection of the fact that there's so much money awash in the world right now, and the alternatives, as you say, would be long bonds at 1.35%. Yeah. So Apple yeah. surely is going to grow better than that, buy it even at the high valuations.
7: I, I think there's some of that, uh, and I think um, Apple is such a big part of any index, S&P 500, MSCI World, whatever index you want to call. There's a, There's a big flow of money into indices or index investing, and that money is buying Apple at any price. Um, so that flow of funds is increasing, uh, coupled with the increased money printing by the U.S. Uh, both those factors, I think, play, play a significant role in that. And also, Apple's fundamental performance, it is a good business, generating good profits. Whether it's worth $2.4 trillion, that's a, that's a different argument. But it is inherently a very good business, and there is a flow of funds into it.
0: And we have seen recently that Microsoft have brought out its new operating system, its latest and greatest, and uh, presumably to take Apple or take on Apple, and uh, Apple's just shrugged that off completely.
7: It's actually a fascinating situation. For all intents and purposes, capital for these businesses, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, capital is free. They can get as much capital as they want for free, effectively. So they can effectively compete very strongly with each other, which they are doing in certain instances. Uh, and I think that will play out over the longer term um, because these companies have generated high returns on their capital. They are good businesses. They are growth businesses. And that sort of attracts – capital attracts competition. And it's busy happening. Um, and we'll have to see what that does to their inherent profitability going forward over the next five to ten years.
0: Would you say they can get capital for free? How so?
7: Well, if you are trading on a PE of, I don't know, 40 or 50, uh, basically the cost of capital is two, 1% or 2%. That's basically for free. Um, you don't have to jump over very high levels to generate a, a return, uh, excess return on that capital. So capital is effectively free. Whereas if your PE is, is five, like many of the other companies, your capital is costing you 20% plus. You know, So it's quite expensive capital.
0: PE meaning price to earnings, in other words, the price multiple earnings of earnings this are. year's profits. So exactly, in, yeah. in, in, the, in the case of these exponential companies, the investors are saying, we believe that you're going to continue to grow rapidly for decades yeah. into the future, which yes. uh, in, in, in an uncertain world, uh, is that unrealistic?
7: Uh, uh, that would be my inclination. Uh, I think when capital is free, it gets misallocated, it gets allocated to projects with very low returns. And that is what you as a shareholder will ultimately earn is the returns on these projects with low returns. Because the hurdle rate is so low, the returns these companies will generate will decline towards that hurdle rate over time. Uh, So yes, I I, I do think that uh, free capital leads to misallocation of capital over time and it leads to low returns for shareholders on capital
0: and hundreds of years ago they used to call it the dutch disease when holland was the yeah. wealthiest country it, it, in the world but it yeah, it, it yeah. wasted a lot of the money that that it had on things like tulip bulbs are we yeah. are we seeing that happening in a way in in, in america with meme stocks cryptocurrencies etc uh,
7: there's no doubt there is a lot of speculative activity happening uh, meme stocks uh, crypto possibly um, Specs, um, IPOs. There's lots of uh, initial public offerings. You know, the companies are coming to the stock market to list um, and being well received by the market. Uh, so there's a lot of that. Uh, so yes, I, I think annual spirits in, in certain markets, not in the South African market, but in the American market, uh, annual spirits are very high because asset prices are quite high. Uh, um, so yes, they, that 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 is very much the case at the moment.
0: But not in South Africa.
7: No, uh, it's almost a converse. I mean, when last did we have a new listing in South Africa? Uh, I can't remember when we had an exciting new listing here. Um, uh, and many, many companies are trading in PE multiples of three, four, five, six good businesses are trading in very low multiples. So it's almost the opposite here. Uh, we, we're on the opposite end of the boat
0: for good reason.
7: Um, yes, to an extent. Uh, I think it might uh, just like, uh, I think, um, one can can never be certain about these things, but I do think that, and this is possibly over optimistic on certain parts of the American market's valuation. I think they might be over pessimistic on certain parts of the South African market's valuation. Should we be trading at a fifty PE? No, I don't think so at all. Should be trading at a should good business be trading at four or five multiples? No, I think that's too low. So as always, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle for both markets, the American market and the South African market.
0: Peter, I'm noticing something, and I'd, I'd be very interested to, to hear whether you've picked this up as well. It, it came through very strongly in uh, two of the interviews that I had yesterday, one with Magnus Haystek and another with Russell Lamberti, that people in South Africa are khatful, a good, old, good old-fashioned South African saying, that they've run out of uh, giving the benefit of the doubt to the government, that they are tired of the state messing everything up, and that they are creating parallels to the formal economy or to the formal state. In other words, they're doing their own security. They're doing their own – individuals are living in their own bubbles and saying, well, we know that it's chaos out there, but at least within my bubble, within my uh, area that I live, within the the, the uh, where my children go to school, et cetera, that I can control, that I can make safe, doesn't matter what the municipality are going to throw at me. At least I can do that. But I, this is a—it's quite a radical thing, and certainly a step towards a failed state. Now, if that is even half accurate, even half correct, then one has to look at the share prices in the JSE, perhaps from a different perspective.
7: Well, I, I think that's what people are doing. They are—they are, they are living in this environment where they have to do things for themselves. They're forced to do so by an incapable state, which, unfortunately, we are governed by an incapable state, uh, who happens to think they're capable, and that's probably half the problem. Um, And and so people are left to their own devices, and they're doing these things for themselves, and they're seeing that they can't rely on the government for anything. uh, And that does lead to negativity. It leads to pessimism, and it leads to people being hurtful. There's, There's no doubt that that is the case. You just have to speak to any of your friends that that is the case. But it also leads to resourcefulness, and a lot of companies that are listed in the JC today are offering services to people who want to do it to themselves, and they're making money out of it, and they're creating alternative economies and alternative ways of doing things, and they are making a living by doing that. So, you know, there's that aspect to it as well. I mean, education, some of the very successful stocks in the stock market are education businesses, delivering a service where the government has failed a large portion of the population, security services, health um, all those things are happening in a parallel market, and, um, and yeah, I, I think it creates opportunity as well. So it creates pessimism, it creates negativity, but I think one should also look at the opportunities it creates.
0: It also prevents new entrants to a large degree, because foreign capital doesn't really come to South Africa, excepting today we saw an announcement that a foreign company is buying imperial. Um, for big money, over 10 billion rands.
7: Yeah, I think 12 billion rand, and there's buying imperial at a significant premium to the market price, which, which tells you what they think about what the market value, so-called market value is of businesses. And, and I think it's not the first time there's, over the past few, over the past year or two, there've been a few buyouts like that from foreign businesses coming in and buying cheap South African assets. And I think we'll probably see more of that going forward. Um, there's no doubt. Uh, we'll see more of that. Uh, there, in every crisis, there is an opportunity. In every setback, there is there is something to be done that is positive. And I think if one views the market and life that way, then one can start seeing opportunities.
0: Is it a case of South Africans being just too close to the fire, and companies like uh, those who the Israelis who bought uh, who bought Clover uh, this latest acquisition of Imperial? Foreigners looking from the outside in and saying, "Hang on, but we are seeing that things maybe slowly, but at least they've hit rock bottom."
7: Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure things hit rock bottom. They can always get worse. Uh, I, you know, by no means am I trying to paint a rosy picture about our tremendous future that we have as a country um, until the government can sort out the the. The backbone of the country, the infrastructure, the supply of infrastructure to the country, it will be a hard place to do business, in, it'll be a hard place to create jobs. It'll be a hard place to create services. Uh, so I, you know, I'm not looking at the world as rose the different glass here, but what I am saying is that if your if your multiple is five, P of five, that means your earnings yield is 20%. That means you, if you just stand still and don't grow, every year you earn 20% on your capital, that's a fantastic return. So you don't have to do much. You just continue operating the state you're in now, you generate a good return. That is how cheap businesses are. You don't have to put on your rose-tinted glasses and say, you know, I, you know, I think the government's going to improve, I think things are going to get better, therefore you should invest. I'm saying there's a, there there are opportunities out there where you can have your what, I'm not sure what the opposite of rose tinted glasses is, but you can have those glasses on and you can still make money.
0: Well, let's hope that DP World, who are paying 12.7 billion rands for Imperial, are seeing something that many South Africans are not. But just to close off with Pit, uh, the move towards working from home. We've had uh, information being distributed by Nedbank to its staff that it is going to have no more than 60 percent of its staffers in the office at any one time. So that's of a staff complement of 31,000 people, that's no more than 20,000 people in there, which means a heck of a lot of office space that's going to come onto the market. Uh, and if other banks and other corporates follow the Ned Bank example, and I presume you, there's no reason why they wouldn't, what does that do to our A, in the property market, and B, what does that do to maybe the efficiencies of South African corporates?
7: Well, you know, I, I think it's a global trend. It's not only seven phenomenon. Um, and, and I think uh, we will learn how to be as efficient, if not more efficient, uh, through portions of the staff complement working from home from time to time. And you can rotate that out and certain teams can be at home, other teams can be at work and rotate. That. So, so I, I guess what I'm saying you'll learn how to work with that. And I think we will uh, call back some of the efficiency we might have lost in this initial period where we're still learning how to deal with the issue. I think humans are quite capable of learning and improving over time i i I do think the office market uh, is uh, see some uh, one can see some long term negative revaluations happening for quite a while uh, in the office market. I think that they they do face trouble, but again, as with anything negative there's positives just think of how little less traffic there will be for those who are going into work and how much more efficient your commuting time is going to be on those days that you actually do go into work. So that will, in itself, will increase efficiency. So, you know, there's always positives uh, to, to every negative. I, I I don't think one should be too negative about that situation. I think it's, it's a natural consequence. Uh, the pandemic has changed our behavior in many ways. And this is one of those which I think will turn out to probably be slightly more permanent than we might have expected initially.
1: This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Bride Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Koki Koiman with Denka Capital. The thing that's intriguing us is what is going on at Nedbank. This could be the first major corporate in South Africa that is following things that are happening internationally where they are sending people home permanently.
8: Yeah, no, I must say, you know, when I, when I read that and you think about it, I do think that this is also a result of having been cut loose from, from, uh, Old Mutual. And, you know, when it happened, we actually said, yeah, this is actually quite a good thing in that. Of mutual as, as a large parent, the same with Barclays, with APSA. Um, yeah, there's always more dampening effect. There's more, always more risk averse and, and it will fire up the team. And I think it has done that. And they've done a number of these things now where they've come with new initiatives. So you can see Mike Brown and his team have sat down and said, okay, okay, guys, we are really on our own now. Now it's up to us. And I think a lot of their tech initiatives are coming through. And, and this is one of them where it's quite brave. To go for, as they call it now, the semi-flexible model where, um, you know, some staff will work from home and some staff will work from the office and, and, but, but everybody will have office hours, but not five days a week. That seems to be past tense. So you're going to need a lot more organizational skills, which I suppose is all done via, um, digital applications now. Um, And you're certainly going to have uh, lower premises costs. They're bringing that down quite a bit. Um, and we're going to see that everywhere of, of corporates reducing staff that are on the premises full time. But yeah, the, the the risks are obviously when you are pioneer. Um, that if it doesn't work, uh, you, you've gotten rid of your 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 your, your premises. <laughs> you've reduced your premises. You can't go back.
0: Yeah, pioneers are the ones who get the arrows in the back, aren't they? <laughs> but, yeah. but, but cookie, yeah. the, the idea here is uh, there was a a memo that was sent out to all Nedbank staffers apparently saying, at any one point in time, no more than sixty percent of you will be in the office. The rest of you will be working from home, which sounds great on paper, but what about in branches? Surely the whole purpose of a branch is that uh, you've got people in the branches to serve the customers who also come into the branches.
8: Yeah, no, spot on. It it affects both head office and branches. And um, so you're going to have to be very clever with just your staff, Shedley. And remember, Branches have already been reduced in size and they focus quite a lot uh, away from the admin intensive stuff. So um, I'm not quite sure how they're going to do that with branches, but I suppose part of it is to, to get branch staff to focus on getting clients to come into the bank online and not to the, to, to the, uh, to the branch.
0: It makes a lot of sense. Okay, so now Nedbank is moving in this way. You've explained to us that it's uh, one of the dividends of being independent of old mutual. But is it likely to be followed by other banks? And I, I ask this in particular on Firstrand, who are the most valuable banking group in South Africa. They're building at their merchant place operation another New, big building there, so maybe this was decided some time ago. But if, if yeah. they're doing, if they're building yeah. more premises, perhaps they feel that uh, this is only going to be a temporary thing of people working from home.
8: Yeah, I, I think um, that is the biggest challenge now for large businesses that commissioned or agreed on the plans to build a new building five years ago, and now you're halfway, and what do you do? Certainly. My observation in terms of what we've done at Denk and, and, and what I see at Sunlam um, and, and globally as well, the footprint everywhere is going to decrease. Uh, so first round, um, you know, I think it's going to be a challenge once the building is finished and to most probably sublet some of that. Um, look, First one is especially being known as a very innovative business. So the the negatives on working from home is that you miss those innovative ideas or often just discussions around the water cooler (laughs) or before after meetings. Apparently, that's where most innovation takes place. Um, And you you miss, especially when you're a growing business, you miss – the leadership and the learning and the culture formation, which if you know, too many people work at home, the culture starts slipping. And that's why guys like Jamie Diamond and other large organizations have said, you know, um, Chubb, one of the largest insurers as well, have said, we are a work from office organization. We believe in the culture and you can only really cultivate a strong culture and learning across teams at the office. Um But, yeah, NetBank have gone the route of being more flexible. And uh, so first, it's going to be interesting how they handle it.
0: NetBank have got 30,000 people who work there. So, in essence, they're going to say only 20,000 of you will be in the office at any one day. Now, that would suggest that there are hundreds of thousands of square meters in office space that is going to be – well, leases are going to be terminated, which, again, is going to flood or put more – Uh, property onto the market do do you think that this has been appreciated yet especially if other organizations and other banks follow the net bank lead
8: and and certainly we see it across all organizations every organization we talk to globally and in south africa and specifically in the financial sector which also always has been very admin heavy that the focus is on reducing that so you're right. Um there's certainly going to be pressure on property prices and you know, um, I think I'm not sure if property analysts uh have all you know built that into their forecast. Um legal in general in the UK, they for years started last few years really started building a model where they actually help um organizations redesign their building. So what you do is you build in a gym and you build in all kinds of other things, but office space is certainly not going to be, uh, it's going to be less than one. Mm.
0: You mentioned Jamie Dimon, who's the chief executive of J.P. Morgan. What's his argument? Why is he uh, almost an outlier here by saying that he wants people to come into the office and as sooner, the sooner the better?
8: Yep. in fact, they, they set their date. I think I think it was now was first of July already, or um, first of September, but it's now uh, now soon. I think I think simply they've decided, you know, on on that uh, many of the, the pros for working from office have, have said, you know, people are more productive working in teams um, and working in an office uh, rather than half being in the office and and half being in on a Zoom call. Uh If you want to set up a meeting, something especially in financial markets, something happens quickly. You want the guys around the table and, and make decisions. Um, well, if they're at home, you can get them in on a Zoom call as well, but it takes more organisation. So I think, I think the, the organizations that want people to work from home believe that culture is very important and you learn f- within the organization, especially younger people coming in from the older ones. If you work at home, you start losing that, that corporate knowledge and learning.
0: Uh, on the American uh, banking scene, there was an article on Bloomberg this morning uh, where Citigroup is going to add about 10 percent to its staff in Africa, including in South Africa, taking their operations here to around 900 people. There are other companies doing the same thing. Uh, Goldman Sachs as well, starting yep. to look at Africa more aggressively. If you're sitting in South Africa and you see the uh, the turmoil that this economy is going through, it's hard to believe that this is possible. But clearly, they must be looking past the pandemic.
8: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're invested in Citigroup and the price has come down quite a bit. And I've been looking at at adding to that position, it's trading below 0.9 price to book. I think it's 0.85 now. And uh, the new management team has pulled it nice, uh, right, nicely. And uh, this worries me a bit, but look, it is true. Um, certainly, if the world growth re- uh, world growth recovers as as one is expecting, um, and it becomes, again, resources are coming to the fore, we can see this in South Africa as well, then a lot of mines are going to need funding. You're going to need a lot more innovation. ESG is putting a lot of pressure on companies in terms of change, the ways that we're doing things. Um so you know uh, there is gonna be a need for innovative advisors um who can structure transactions and obviously that's what they're banking on. Um and then obviously a lot of it is, is right through Africa. So hundred people through well, hundred people are still a lot, but um I, I was actually surprised, but I think it makes sense. If 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 world is gonna grow and resources are gonna be needed, then you know, city sees the opportunity.
0: Corky, we ran a piece in the Biz News premium uh, section this morning from our partners at the Wall Street Journal, which says that uh, the European banks have had a huge rebound and yet, and that's in the share prices, yet investors are still looking to climb into European banks as well uh, at the current levels. You've been tipping banks all around the world, including Europe, for a while. Have they had their run or can we also join what the Wall Street Journal is recommending?
8: Yeah, I, I think when you what what you mustn't forget is that the a big price fall that you saw in February March. So although they've had a huge bounce back from the first of um, let's call it the first of April, two thousand twenty, uh, quite a few are still not above their their prices uh, that they were in December nineteen or marginally above. And then secondly. Remember that the um, growth in net asset value per share, or shareholder value, um, all of them actually grew shareholder value. They built huge reserves, but but the, the pandemic didn't hurt banks as much as was was thought, and so they actually come out with shareholder value being above where it was, or, or let's say ten percent, um, and then. If you can believe what the EU is saying that, you know, they're only coming out of the pandemic now. Remember lockdowns have only been ended now. So uh, the economy should start picking out. Then these banks are still very cheap. I mean, I think ING, which is one of the top banks also in terms of digital, digitalization strategies and, and fintech ventures are still trading at 0.7 price to nav um, and their target a return on capital is 12 percent now we in our own modeling we can't quite get to 12 but <laughs> even 10 or 9 trading at a 0.7 price to nav a dividend of let's say 6 percent next year now they're still attractive you're not going to see another 50 percent run but uh, they're still attractive
9: hello and welcome to the Rathman review I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week we're looking at South Africa, where former President Jacob Zuma faces a 15-month jail term for contempt of court, after refusing to cooperate with an official inquiry into corruption and state capture during his nine years as president, which ended in 2018. My guest is Judith February, a South African lawyer and newspaper columnist and a member of the board of the Nelson Mandela Foundation. So does the sentencing of Jacob Zuma mark a turning point for South Africa? Jacob Zuma's long-faced allegations of corruption and abuse of power, but many doubted he would ever be held accountable. So it was a dramatic moment when, a few days ago, South Africa's Constitutional Court announced its verdict. Here's Acting Chief Justice Sisi Kampepe
1: No person enjoys exclusion or exemption from the sovereignty of the laws of the Republic. And Mr. Zuma is no exception. And indeed, it would be antithetical to the value of accountability if those who once held high office are not bound by the law.
9: But former President Zuma made it clear that he had no intention of going quietly to prison. He launched a series of legal challenges and he attempted to rally his supporters by claiming that he is the victim of nefarious forces who want to take South Africa back to the days of apartheid. I'm very concerned that South Africa is fast sliding back to apartheid-type
1: rule. I am facing long (coughs) detention without trial.
9: When I spoke to Judith February, former President Zuma still had some legal challenges outstanding, and it was unclear if and when the police might move in to arrest him. It was and is a tense situation, but taking a few steps back, it's clear South Africa's already taken a historic step in turning the page on the Zuma era and reasserting the rule of law, as Judith February explained to me when I spoke to her on the line from Cape Town.
10: It is a crucial judgment, I think, for many reasons. It stands out for me because it sends out a clear message that nobody, not even a former president, is above the law. And I may point out at this stage that when Mandela was president, this was a message that he tried to send very early in his presidency when he was called as a witness in a court case, which bizarrely was also about setting up a commission of inquiry, but into rugby. And people were outraged at the time that Mediba, with his godlike status, could be called to account in a witness box. But he was doing that early on in our democracy to indicate equality before the law, and that everyone, no matter how powerful you are, needs to be held to account. And certainly, that is what the constitutional court judgment last week signified. But. The language that was used by the court also was really firm and drawing a line in the sand. And what the court was doing was really reinforcing its own authority. And as then Acting Chief Justice CC Campempi said, she said the job of the judiciary is, quote, a lofty and a lonely one. But then also went on to say that the courts cannot rely on purse or force. The Constitutional Court doesn't have an army that it can muster. And so it depends on everyone, no matter how powerful you are, adhering to its authority. And she was really clear in her language to indicate just how egregious Jacob Zuma's conduct was when he was cocking a snook at the judiciary and also at the commission of inquiry into state capture, which ironically he himself had set up. So it was powerful for those two reasons particularly, but also I think because there was a a very strong black woman who was delivering this judgment with such force and such clarity of mind. And the symbolism of that will stay with us for a long time.
9: Were you, as a lawyer, as a South African, concerned that the rule of law really was in danger, I mean, both during the Zuma years and then during his efforts to kind of shrug aside the commission looking into corruption?
10: Well, we had almost a decade of of state capture, what we call now the nine wasted years. On President Zuma's watch, there was large scale looting of the state. And what Jacob Zuma did was he brought our institutions to the edge he was always pushing us towards a crisis. It's not the first time, incidentally, that he's been found to be constitutionally delinquent. In fact, in 2016, the Constitutional Court similarly ordered him to adhere to constitutional precepts. And there again, the Chief Justice, Mkhweng Mkhweng, had very strong words about the role of a head of state in preserving, protecting and defending the Constitution. So this constitutional delinquency was part Of his presidency. But there's something at the heart of the South African society which is robust, which is resilient, a powerful media, strong civil society, which really formed a bedrock against the impunity of the Zuma years. And I dare say got us through the nine wasted years to the point where we are now trying to rebuild from this self inflicted wound of corruption and state capture during the Zuma years.
9: And economically, as opposed to legally, how much damage did the nine wasted years do to South Africa? I mean, I think per capita income actually fell during that period.
10: The economic damage was severe. I mean, South Africa is said to have lost over those nine wasted years about $70 billion through corruption and state capture. Also, we had a growth rate which barely exceeded one and a half percent per annum. Our Unemployment rates skyrocketed to about 28 percent, and that is the narrow definition of employment. So it excludes the number of people who have given up looking for a job. The debt as a percentage of GDP ballooned to about 53 percent towards the end of 2017. So there are very real consequences to Jacob Zuma's corruption. Also, the levels of inequality have risen, and the gap between those who have and those who don't has increased exponentially. Apart from that, we've also had hollowed-out institutions. So those state-owned enterprises and government enterprises, for example, ESCOM, the electricity provider, Transnet, the provider of transport, Danell, the arms provider, those institutions were all looted through contracts to Jacob Zuma and his associates. And they are now hollow shells. And part of the Ramaphosa presidency is about rebuilding that damage. But also, revenue collection came under pressure during the Zuma years as well. Far more individuals who were skirting ways in which to pay tax. And also, of course, if you have an ailing economy, you're not going to have the revenue collection that you should. Should have. And in 2018, we were in a recession. So these years of state capture had very real consequences for ordinary people, government wages way down. The repercussions of that are serious. And we are still busy trying to dig ourselves out of that hole.
9: So a huge task for Ramaphosa when he took over as president in 2018. And I guess not made much easier by the fact that he only just managed to get control of the ANC and the Zuma forces were still very strong within the party. And is that still the case?
10: So when President Surah Ramaphosa took over, he certainly took over a country which was in crisis in every way, both economically and also politically. But also he took over an ANC which was divided. Firstly, Jacob Zuma was recalled by his party There were many days of back and forth of the party trying to convince him to do the right thing, to step down gracefully in a dignified manner. He eventually did so, but after he kept the entire country guessing. This is typical of Jacob Zuma to put his own interests ahead of those of the country. And President Ramaphosa did not have an overwhelming victory at the ANC conference, which brought him to power. And so he's had to hold the tension within the party between what one would loosely call the reformist wing of the ANC, if one believes that Ramaphosa represents that, a part of the ANC which believes in the rule of law, the constitution, and so on. And then former President Zuma and his allies, who believe in what they bandy around as radical economic transformation. But really, it is simply another... Fancy way of dressing up a kind of looting of the state and untrammeled access to state power for personal gain. And so Ramaphosa has had to deal with that ANC in many ways, filled with the corrupt individuals of the Zuma years, both at a national level and also at a local level. Ramaphosa is an institutionalist. He believes in the institutions of state. And sometimes for us as South Africans, he can be quite frustrating because. He tends to be somebody for the long game. And so he will be silent. He will wait and wait until the institutions and processes do their tasks before he intervenes or speaks strongly about whether it's corruption in his cabinet or what is happening within the internal politics of the ANC. But slowly but surely, we are seeing progress. Slowly but surely, we are seeing institutions being cleaned up. We are seeing individuals being appointed who have integrity, and that there are green shoots of this renewal. That is partly because of Ramaphosa's efforts, but I think also partly because we have a society which, through its media, through its civil society, is insistent on the standards of the Constitution. We know what it's like to be governed by whim or by force, and South Africans are quite jealous about their freedoms.
9: But I guess, I mean, you say it's encouraging that there are green shoots in society, in the economy, as Ramaphosa tries to turn the country around. But he's now been hit with this terrible whammy of the COVID pandemic. And I gather that that's getting worse in South Africa. Presumably, it must be quite a worrying situation.
10: It is a worrying situation. And what COVID-19 has done is it's laid bare all the weaknesses within our society, the deep levels of inequality, the deep levels of endemic poverty. And also the high levels of unemployment. The government simply does not have the money for this kind of crisis. When the 2008 financial crisis hit, South Africa was well padded against that because we had proper systems in place. We had responsible governance and also responsible management of our, of public finances and resources. After the Zuma years, that was no longer. And so in a sense, the bulwark the treasury was had fallen. And so one has a kitty, which is bare. And add to that a global pandemic, which has hit South Africa really hard in terms of making poor people who are on the margins even poorer. And also it's shown up the weaknesses within our institutions, the weaknesses within our police force, for example, when we had lockdowns, the poor were at the receiving end of a lot of instances of police brutality, for example, trying to get people to stay locked up inside ramshackle homes. And so all of the things that divide us in South Africa were really, were really laid bare. And then we had at the beginning of the pandemic, what was a a reasonable response? Ramaphosa came out, government acted relatively quickly. They acted early, but then the wheels started coming off because a country like ours can't be in lockdown forever. We don't have the resources to have people be at home and for the economy to stop. And so Ramaphosa finds himself in a very difficult position now, dealing with the uh, third wave, the Delta variant in particular, in um, Gauteng, the economic hub. It's looking really, really grim. We are in what we call a level four lockdown. So um, there's severe restrictions on movement, but one has to also balance that with livelihoods and keeping the economy open. And the only way in which we're going to be able to deal with this, I think, is by rolling out uh, the vaccine as quickly as possible. And the president will have to do a lot more to try and stabilize the Ministry of Health and also to harness the power of the private sector, I think, to be able to roll out uh, vaccines in a way which is efficacious and in a way which we can fully open up the economy at some point. So it is a perfect storm that we're in.
9: Yeah, the perfect storm, I guess, because you have, if anyone thinks about it, a health crisis, an economic crisis, and a full-blown political crisis in the Zuma situation. And it strikes me watching from the outside, some of it very reminiscent of even what happened in the United States, the way in which Zuma's rhetoric is willing to trash state institutions to indulge in conspiracy theories. It's classic populism, isn't it?
10: It is. And in a sense, Sumo is a very Trumpian character. So he cries foul when the rules must apply to him, but he doesn't hesitate to use the courts when it suits him to do so. Also, he would define judges as good when they find in his favour, rare as that has been, and then bad when they don't find for him. He's also surrounded himself with a group of sycophants and criminals and lawyers who are opportunistic and who would tear down the edifice to protect Zuma to advance their own careers. We've seen his lawyers even now trying to use every legal trick in the book to try and keep him out of prison. And what they're doing is they're pushing our legal system to the edge and also pushing the limits, I believe, of civil procedure. So it's quite similar to sort of Trump-Giuliani relationship. Jacob Zuma has plenty of those individuals. But also he's a master at the song and dance, the bread and games. He's a master at simple, short messages, and he's a master of victimhood. And so not unlike Donald Trump, um, when he lost the election, he was the victim of a grand conspiracy to rob him of the elections. Jacob Zuma similarly was on national television holding a media briefing saying that he is A victim of the democratic state. And never before has a president been treated so badly. He said it was reminiscent of the apartheid years. All of that is a lie. And um, interestingly enough, the, the conspiracy theories abound, but also this idea that the Constitution is what he would call a white man's document. And he has used that very cleverly to try and cleave those racial divides even further and saying that this is something which is alien. And of course, that's all a lie, because our constitution was negotiated. And it was a very inclusive process, and something that we chose to have a constitutional democracy. So smoke and mirrors, the populism is there. And very good, as I said, at the song and dance routine, very good at the short, sharp slogans, and at getting people to follow him, a sort of Pied Piper scenario. So there are many similarities between Zuma and Trump.
9: That was Judith February in Cape Town, ending this edition of the Rachman Review.
0: Thanks for being with us for the Biz News Power Hour. Until Monday, from the team, cheerio.